It would appear, uh, based on your re-examine of the text, that Christians who are seeking to live biblically would err on the side of accountability for policing rather than what we seem to have among especially white evangelicals, this blind loyalist eye for this idea of a blue lives matter. Why does this matter now more than ever, especially uh, for Christians to, to seek accountability um, uh, among policing in our, in our country? And why, that is, why is that centric towards our, our faith, not just the social and political perspective we might have? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fucci, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Esau McCauley. He is an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, along with contributing to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Religious News Service, and Christianity Today. He has authored several books, including Reading While Black. Dr. McCauley, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. So way back in 20, September of 2020, uh, in COVID years, that's about 30 years ago, um, you, you released a, this fascinating book, Reading While Black. And this book started as a place where you're originally attempting uh, to take everything you learned from the academic realm back to your church and to your community. But once you were in academia, you realized that uh, the academy didn't understand the community. Um, yeah. So Take us a little deeper into that gap that exists between, quote, higher education and real life. Well, I think that when the, the story that you that you talk about kind of recounts my own academic journey, um, which kind of eventually comes into the book. In other words, I used to think, you know, and I think this is still true, that the best way to do effective ministry is to get some kind of theological education to prepare you to serve the people to whom God has called you. And so I thought, yeah, I need to go to seminary. I need to learn, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew, the theology, the church history in order to come back and serve my community. But I was quickly under, I quickly came to see that the places where I was going to be theologically trained in the academy, broadly speaking, didn't understand the people for whom I was once going to serve. So they had a misconception of kind of what the black church was and what it was about. And so I ended up 
spending a lot of my time in the academic world saying, no, I think you've gotten the black church wrong. And I think that you've missed our, our ethos and our culture in a variety of ways. And so when I came down to write reading my black, and I'm not the first person to done this, other people have done this before me, I tried to, to kind of combine those two worlds to make them intelligible to each other. I tried to explain to um, the readers who were from the academic side, um, kind of the ethos and the culture of the black church as I experienced it. And I tried to show how some of the tools that I had learned in the academy could be useful for articulating kind of the instincts, culture, and habits of Black Christians. The fascinating aspect of this book is, you know, in many regards, um, it, it taps into one of the difficult uh, conversations about Christianity as um, you know, a predominant tool among white European uh, settlers. And, and we'll get to that here in just a second. But the pursuit of the book is to equip readers with the ability to interpret the Bible through the eyes of, um, of an African-American. And you wrote, yeah. I read biblical commentaries that display little concern for how biblical texts speak to the experience of Black believers. When yeah. there was an attempt to provide practical application to the text, these applications were too often designed for white middle-class Christians. Talk to us about the deeper vision behind this book and its attempt to equip readers. Yeah, so I think that, I think that it is really hard for people to think about when you write a book, this is a very simple question, but when you read a book, who do you imagine the book is for? Who is the, and, and so I read a lot of books in the academy where the books were not written for me i could get i could gain use for them a book doesn't have to be to me for me to find fruit in them but the book weren't written for me i'll give you one perfect example i was reading a book about um the good samaritan or something i forget what or commentary and the author said well when you think of a samaritan um you should think about like all of the negative cultural stereotypes that kind of accrue to Samaritans. It would be just like today, if we saw someone from the Middle East, we'd immediately be suspicious. So I said, well, no, like if I wanted to say, what was something that would instinctively kind of give me a sense of dis-ease about encountering them in the street, it wouldn't actually be somebody from the Middle East. That's not actually my cultural landing spot. But, but this, this commentary was written, I think, during the height of kind of the, um, the Gulf War type area. And so they're thinking, well, to an average kind of middle-class American, then a Middle Easterner communicates foreign and dangerous, but that's not what that communicates to me. And so a lot of times you, you have these kinds of ways of writing where the author has done the exegetical work and they're thinking, well, how could I translate this to an audience? And what I wanted to say is they, they rarely ever considered what that text meant to a young black person trying to make sense of what it meant to be Christian in, a, in an America that is sometimes hostile to black people. And so what I said, I wanted to write a book that was not about racism or it was not about black people, but it was to black people. In other words, when I imagined the people who would open up the book, I wanted to imagine a, a African-American Christian who are struggling with their faith because of the things they had experienced in this country. I'll give you another example. This might seem like it's small. I remember sitting in um, seminary and these other places, and I'll just listen to the, the, the analogies that came from the mouths of the professors and pastors. I mean, it'd be stuff like Seinfeld jokes and, you know, C.S. Lewis quotes and J.R. Tolkien. And I love C.S. Lewis and I love Tolkien. I never really seen Seinfeld, but those books, and those television shows are read by a certain demographic. And so when you create a narrative world where all of the people who populate that world are white in the stories, in the analogies, in the applications, the heroes and the villains are all white, then the black person feels like, well, this is not a story for me. So when I opened my book, the characters were black. The analogies are black. The stories, the songs, the television shows were from, from the black context out of which I come because I wanted to be people to be able to say that the context of African-American Christian experience is a place from which you can do theology. 
And the thing that's really important about that is that there's there's a secondary like element to it. So I, in my mind, I said, I want to show people how doing theology from this context can produce fruit. But it was also, and I knew that that would be an encouragement to black readers. But there's another part of that too, that in, in a lot of context, we African-Americans have done the work of translation. We read something that is not for us, but we still got something from it. And what I wanted my, the white readers who would read it is to say, I can learn from a book that is not written to me. And the experience of doing that, learning from a book that is not written to you, gives you an insight on what African-American Christians do all of the time. So stretching back before imperial colonialism, white European countries have used Christianity as a weapon to subjugate, enslave, and annihilate non-white populations across the globe. And, and since this was the dominant power of the last 10 centuries, they also held the biggest stick when it came to theological application and biblical interpretation. Um, you know, we, the people of the 21st century, are inheritors of a white centric Christian worldview. In the book, you noted, if the scriptures were fundamentally flawed and largely useless apart from the mainline revision of the text, then Christianity is truly a white man's religion. They were reconstructing it without my consent. If the Bible needs to be rejected to free Black Christians, then such a view seems to entail the fundamentalism. fundamentalist had interpreted the Bible correctly. You know, as if it it shouldn't be obvious. What are some of the major ways that a white-centric Christianity um, has taken hold in, in, in America? And, and why, um, why this book and, and what you are pursuing through it um, is, is so critical for our time right now? Yeah, actually, the interesting thing that was going on with that particular passage that you quoted is I was trying to help people understand how um, African-American Christians received the biblical text. And I was, in that passage that you're quoting, there is a, a, a intervention into an argument that I was trying to make. And forgive me if I kind of explain this for a second. Historically, African-Americans, if you look at the center of African-American kind of reception of Christianity, there's been a strong affirmation in the general trustworthiness and authority of scripture. You can find that in all of our early confessional statements. And the African-American Christians have historically seen in the Bible a God who's a friend and not an enemy, a God who's on the side of liberation, justice, transformation, and sanctification. And one of the things, so that's like the, the center is what I want to say, the center of the African-American Christian tradition. Now, when I went to college, um, I, was, I was in a, a mainline uh, institution and they said, well, the Bible is a tool of oppression and that, you know, the Bible is used to justify all kinds of atrocities. And this is kind of the white, I call this the white mainline kind of standard critique of fundamentalism. So these fundamentalists are bad because these fundamentalists are using the Bible to do all of these horrible things. And so the solution to the problem that um, often mainline Christians, some mainline Christians, not all, um, posited was, well, we need to get rid of the Bible and and make a new Christianity for the modern world. But actually what I was trying to articulate there is that new Christianity is just another manifestation of kind of white Western European liberalism in Christian guise. And, and the point I was trying to make there is, if you say we must get rid of the Bible in order to find liberation, then you're implicitly saying the fundamentalist use of the Bible for suppression was exegetically correct. And the fundamental critique that Black Christians were making was, no, the fundamentalist misuse of the Bible to justify um, oppression was a bad reading of the scriptures. And so by revising the Bible apart from like my consent, they were actually indirectly supporting the very fundamentalist, fundamentalist interpretation they were looking to de deconstruct. And so what I was trying to get at there is that in a lot of the theological debates between um, white progressivism and white conservatism, they're fighting for the scripture and they're not actually including the voices and interpretive traditions of African-American Christians who sometimes challenge that binary. And so I, I, I wanna say something along the lines of 
there's a way of telling the Christian story that's kind of only a, de a devolutionary narrative where, you know, the scripture is used for all of these horrible things. And now we who become of age have a new take. And I want to say, well, there's another way through that history, especially as it relates to the African-American reception and interpretation of scriptures in North America. That's why I think the, the nuance uh, and depth of this book is, is so fascinating. Um, I, I learned a lot from our guest, uh, Terry Wildman, who we had on the podcast earlier this year, uh, wrote the first interpretation for the First Nation people of the New Testament. And in our conversation, we were talking about you know, the struggle of, of natives to, 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 to uh, you know, adopt Christianity as their own, even after this religion was used to, to subjugate and annihilate the First Nation people. And, you know, recognizing that Christianity and this Jesus-centric faith is much larger and broader and deeper um, than, than the legacy of, of white centric uh, European settlers and, and why that is a, a powerful notion to, to latch onto. Um, it, it's such a remarkable thing that, you know, your book helped broaden even more my understanding um, of that. I'd like to, if it's possible to dive just specifically into one specific chapter, because I think it's, sure. it shows just how uh, meaningful this re-examination of the, of the scriptures. One of the most fascinating chapters of the book is on, was on policing. And you examine ministries and writings of, 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 of Paul and John, the, the ministry of Jesus, among others, as a way of seeing the legacy of Christian, Christians seeking to keep those that uphold the ruling laws with accountability. You wrote, the closest parallel to the modern police were the soldiers tasked with the work of keeping order in the cities and towns of the empire. These soldiers, especially in Rome, touched on every aspect of Christian life. As Christians, it is part of our calling to remind those charged with governing of their need to create an atmosphere in which people are able to live without fear. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into why Christianity has a, a has a legacy in this area, and it's something that we need to re-examine for today. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I would love to once again kind of put that 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 quote in context and in, 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 in to ex explain what I was doing, especially with Romans thirteen. A lot of times when Christians um, begin to think about um, what does it mean to uh, support the state. They tend to go to two passages, Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, which says, pray for the people who are in authority. And the first thing I want to say in that section was that decision is a theological decision. In other words, the Bible doesn't say, start with Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 when you're thinking about a Christian political theology. I said, and, and, I, and I made this point in that chapter, what happens if you do something like begin with the book of Revelation, which has an extensive political critique of the Roman Empire um, and its unjust and corrupt practices? What if you start with the prophets who themselves in, in consistent places push back on the abuses of the state? So that's the first thing that I did. I said, we need to think about what does it mean to do biblical theology? And to do biblical theology means to not deny one text and, and put one text against each other, but to put them in conversation and to develop a holistic account of what the scriptures are saying. And then I turned to Romans 13 in particular, and I, and I, and I spoke, the, the, the part that you're quoting, the part that you're quoting here speaks to um, what Paul actually says about the, the, the roles of the state. And Paul says something like, if you're innocent, then you should have nothing to fear from the state. Now, and, and, and the idea then is that Paul is in that passage in Romans 13, focusing on the duties of citizens to the state. But in the context of doing that, he's also articulating the responsibilities of the state to its citizens. And one of the things that it says is the, the innocent should not be afraid. And the basic point that I want to make there is, well, I think that African-Americans have a real right to be afraid, even though we're innocent. And, th and this is like the fundamental critique of African-American Christians as it relates to the policing powers of the state is that we have a legitimate reason to be concerned that even if we're innocent, we can still be mistreated. Now, in the context of the Roman Empire, the state was the emperor. 
And so the emperor had a responsibility to create a culture of policing without any fear. That was the emperor's responsibility. But we had to do some, some creative theological um, reapplication of what that means in a democratic republic. Because in a democratic republic, we don't just have a ruler who is in place, who no matter what he does, we just have to put up with it and pray for something better. If a, a democratic republic means anything, it means that we're the state. We elect representatives who then implement our desires. So that means that the Christian has the responsibility to put into place people who are then going to create a culture that in which African-Americans don't have a reason to be afraid. And so it's not simply the Christian response to say, okay, I disagree with what's going on, but my job as a Christian is to, is to pray for the leaders and to submit. No, in a democratic republic, you have, a, you have, a, you have more responsibility because yes, you can pray for the people who are in charge, but you can also vote, advocate, and lobby to change laws to get rid of fear. And I think that one of the things that we've attempted to do in the church sometimes is as it relates to ongoing issues of injustice, we've adopted a certain kind of withdrawal as if we're in the exact same kind of monarchy that existed in the first century. We're not in a monarchy, we're in a republic and in a republic, the people have a responsibility to elect people who create culture. So if we don't like the culture of policing, then we can change the people who are in charge who then can affect the culture. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. It would appear, uh, based on your re-examine of the text, that Christians who are seeking to live biblically would err on the side of accountability for policing rather than what we seem to have among especially white evangelicals, this blind loyalist eye for this idea of a blue lives matter. Um, you know, the, the great, the great headmaster of uh, Hogwarts uh, once said, uh, dark times lie ahead of us. And there will be a time when we choose between what is easy and what is right. Why, why does this matter now more than ever, especially uh, for Christians to to seek accountability um, uh, among policing in our in our country, and why that is why is that centric towards our our faith, not just the social and political perspective we might have? Well, I think that on one level, now is not any more urgent than at any other point in American history. In other words, the claim that African Americans make about the way they were policed is a consistent claim going all the way back to the civil rights movement behind that to the fugitive slave laws and you know kind of the founding of this country. So in one sense, there's been a persistent 
um, push for a, a reform in the way that we're treated by the state. So I don't want to, one of the things that was really interesting is that I wrote um, Reading While Black and like, I think I wrote it in like, started writing in like 2017, 2018. And then when it came out, people was like, oh, this seems super, super relevant, you know, in 2020. It, it feels like it could have been written yesterday. Well, the reason that the policing chapter feels relevant is because there's always something going on in this country as it relates to how, how we police as citizens. So that's the first thing that I would say is that I don't want to um, diminish the previous sufferings of, of African-Americans as it relates to policing. Now, the reason why this might relate to how we function as Christians, and this is really, really important. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to witness to a, 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 a city whose builder and maker is God, to witness to a king and a kingdom. And so when the Christian sees the society or state acting in a way that dehumanizes people, part of what your job is as a Christian is to, is to let the state know what you're doing here is not in God's will and that God has a better way of running affairs. And so our political protest isn't just like us trying to score points or create a utopia. It is saying, here are all the ways in which the state fails to treat people the way that God would have them be treated. And in articulating that failure, you're articulating the uniqueness of what Christianity says about what a person is and what a society can be. And so I don't see like um, speaking about policing or injustice as some kind of distraction from the Christian faith, I think it is one way in which we say, here's the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of people. There's so much uh, on this book I want to touch on, but we're actually here to discuss your new book, which we'll get to in a few seconds. But I wonder... That's okay. You keep asking me. I'll take whatever questions you give me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder if you might give us some guidance um, for, for our congregational leaders and clergy listening to this that want to guide their church into broadening their biblical worldview by seeing scriptures through the eyes of their black and brown neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, the first thing that I would say, a couple of things, is it's always really good to like take a step back um, and understand the nature of the claims being made. And to kind of to begin to get your head around what we're talking about when we talk about African-American biblical interpretation, because some people will say, well, there's no such thing as African-American biblical interpretation. There's only like the Bible, interpreting the Bible. One of the things that I would say to people is, if you've ever read British theology or British literature at all, you understand that the British specialize in understatement. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, all of the British television shows have kind of these smoldering looks that function as all of their dialogue. And so that kind of British reserve um, filters into the theological um, habits and culture of the UK. That's why I have a thing called British evangelicalism, different than American evangelicalism. If you take, if you turn your gaze from the UK and you go over to Australia, you get a very different brand of kind of Australian Christianity. And then if you take yourself over to Germany and you read German theological work, then you see that difference there. There are even journals, like the Scottish Theology Journal or the, the study of German theology. And nobody ever gets upset about these ideas. You understand that by going to Germany and reading things from the UK, I'm getting an enriched theological experience. The other thing that you're taught to do if you're trained at all, worth your salt, is they say, you know what? You should read across church history. You should read the, the uh, church fathers and the people of the Reformation, because people in different contexts can help you to see things that you can't see. So that idea, that basic idea that I wanted to go across time and across culture in order to expand my theological horizons is common to every single theological tradition known to humanity. The interesting thing about that is when we turn our gaze towards America, and we say, well, we need to understand African-American Christians also have a unique contribution. That's when people get upset. And the reason is for that reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but it seems like we tend to want to believe that there's one culture in America 
and understanding that there's subcultures in America that also have their unique theological contributions to give to society is for some reason controversial. And so the first thing I want people to understand is like, what are you actually attempting to do? I'm sorry, but can, let, me, let me talk. Can I say more about Germany? Can I speak about Germany? You can take as yes. much time as okay. much as you I'm want. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say some stuff about Germany. Because I'm assuming that my, our beloved readers here love to talk about, you at least have heard of the Reformation. And so anyone who teaches you about the Reformation, the first thing that they do, this is an amazing thing. The first thing that they do is they set the historical context of what's going on in Germany. In other words, they're not giving you an objective account of theology in the Roman Catholic tradition. They're saying, this is what Luther, was, this is what Luther saw as he walked around Germany. And Luther experienced these things in Germany that has unique forms of issues and concerns. And that location in Germany shaped what he said about Christianity. And they said, even though Luther was informed by his context, Luther was able to say something true about God. So there is no decontextualized telling of the Lutheran story. There's always a contextual location of what led to Luther's insights, but those contextual circumstances led to true, hopefully true insights about God. And so another, what I wanna say is if German context can give rise to true theological statements that Luther said that are applicable, not just to Germany, but to Christians everywhere, that it is possible for the unique situations of African-Americans to give rise to true theological insights that are also true for people everywhere. And so when we're saying expand your theological horizon by reading African-American writers, we're not saying go and read things that aren't true about God or that simply being black, having black skin gives you magical insight into God. It is saying that the experiences of African-Americans because of their racialized um, experiences in the United States can give rise to theological opinions that are true. And so how do you get access to those things? That was the question that I think you wanted to get to at first. Well, the first thing that I want to say is that African-American Christianity is an invited experience. And one of the things that I would really encourage a pastor or a, a, a lay person to read this to do is to find a local African-American church and listen to their sermon. Commit to find two or three pastors. Say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to them preach every Sunday on a pod. You can find them on a podcast. I'm going to listen to them throughout the course of a church year. And I'm just going to follow the ups and downs and the rhythms of that community to really get a on the ground experience of the context and the ethos and the culture of black preaching. The second thing I would say is there are tons of places where you can look at primary sources, African-American sermons, slave, um, liberationist, anti-abolitionist text, all of these things. In other words, I would encourage people to go to the source. One of the things that I like to talk about is when you look at early Christianity um, coming out of the end of the, the, the New Testament era, there is kind of what we call the church fathers and mothers. These are the sermons, the, the theological confessional statements and the treatises that kind of serve as the foundation of what becomes Christianity. And then out of that, you kind of have a, a longer term development of other theological traditions. But that core first three or 400 years is essential to understanding what Christianity became. And I wanna say there's a similar phenomenon as it relates to African-American Christianity in the United States. There is a core foundation of what it means to be a Christian that these African-American believers wrestle with. And this, these are in their sermons. These are in the confessional statements of um, the uh, early African-American churches. And these are in, in the same way, the city of God, reading in the city, not city of God, reading confessions is a key way of getting a picture into kind of a formative era of Christian theological development, or reading some of these um, slave narratives is also a key way into understanding how Christianity played a formative impact in the early generation of African-American believers. Can I say one more thing about uh, Germany? Yes. It's, it's a masterclass in history of if you don't question the theological underpinnings of a particular religious movement, how it easily gives rise to support to things like fascism. So it is always good to, to question the predominant religious view and to examine the views of, of others. Um, 
our, our good friends at InterVarsity and I have a great relationship. Uh, shout out to Krista Clayton uh, for her hard work. And uh, they said they were sending me the new Esau McCulley book. I was, uh, I was jazzed. What I didn't expect to receive in the mail was a children's book. So before we get to the content of the book, walk us through this new facet of your writing for, for children. Well, I think I have maybe writer ADHD. I'm not exactly sure what how to make sense of what I do as a writer. My first book was um, an academic monograph called Sharing in the Sun's Inheritance, where I'm looking at second temple text and all of those other things. My second book was a book on hermeneutics um, and how we read the Bible as African-American Christians. And then I started, you know, writing a monthly column for the New York Times, which sometimes doesn't have the Bible in it at all. Um, oftentimes it doesn't. And then there is a kid's book. And after that, there's a theology book on Lent that's coming in November. So I tend to write, I tend to ignore the boundaries of what people say an academic should be or could be, because those rules weren't written with people like me in mind. In other words, they weren't asking what do Black people need to thrive and to grow and to live faithful lives under the obedience of the scripture before God when they started creating the caricature of what an academic was supposed to be? So I just write kind of what I want to write <laughs> is, is part of it. But the other thing that I really think is, is interesting is like, who do, they, who do we think is worthy of our time and attention? In other words, sure, you can write books for adults, and that's very, very important. But I feel like Jesus thought kids were really, really important. And if Jesus valued kids, then it's okay for me to value kids. And so what I really wanted to say is the people who need to hear a, a good and encouraging word about the life before God are not just adults who are trying to make sense of what it means to be Christian in a complex world. It also includes um, young children who are beginning to get their first understandings of who God is. I have four young children. And what I really wanted to do was um, present a, a, a understanding for my children, if nobody else, that God made them in his image, no matter what color you are. And that um, God wants to invite, you know, the nations into his family. And so I thought that was an important message for kids to hear. And so I wrote a book about it. The other thing, to, to be honest, is that it was the pandemic. And when I wrote the book, I wrote the book, um, like pre-vaccine in the in the depth and the heights of the pandemic and and not that it's over i'm just saying this is pre-vaccine we didn't really understand it and it was kind of a dark time in like american life like world worldwide life and i felt really strongly led to create something that was hopeful and that was accessible to people so yes um reading while black giving way to a kid's book is, uh, is a decision, but I think it's a theological statement in part about uh, the fact that young and old are valuable to God. On a personal note, uh, you've, you've turned up the pressure on me from a familial standpoint. You see, for my, my doctorate program right now, I'm, I'm writing a book as my final um, thesis, if you will, uh, but my children found out you know, in, I give my children all all the books uh, that I have come in, especially yours. And uh, I said, Daddy, you know, why, don't, why aren't you writing a children's book, too? Uh, That's so, a good question. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. And so so let's, the, other, the other thing, sorry to interrupt you. The other thing that people tend to think, and this is like really, really interesting. And I want to make sure I'm very, very careful about how I talk about this. Um, I'm not speaking negatively about anyone who has written a children's book. We tend to think that, oh, the people who are practically minded or the people who are like into these kinds of things, they should write it. And the people whose job it is to like talk about theology and talk about the scriptures, well, that's not for, that's not, that's not something we should do. In other words, we tend to have a passion oriented understanding of who ministers to children. And then we say you have to be scholarly to minister to adults. But one of the best things that you could do is to try to do the hard work of distilling complex theological ideas for children. So how old are your kids? I've got a 10-year-old and seven-year-old. So you understand what it's like when you're trying to like take something that you said and make it make sense to a 10-year-old. That's actually harder, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it, it's... So, 
Yeah, it worked for Jesus, you know, in your argument here, you know, it's like, <laughs> it makes sense for us. I'm just saying from a familial side, pressure is oh, now on me to, to yeah, write you know, a, a I'm, yeah. I'm doubling down. I remember <laughs> my, my, uh, my, my daughter, because um, the, the book is, is loosely based upon um, my daughter and me. I, take a, I do take my daughter to the beauty shop. The, job, the story recounts a father taking his daughter to a beauty shop. But a friend of mine came to me after church and they said, you know, she said, I saw your daughter in the hallway and your daughter came up to me and said, you know, my daughter, my, 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 uh, my, my father wrote a book and the lady in church go, yeah, I know. I heard about it. You know, reading my black is really, really good. People are like, she go, not that book. <laughs> she said, no, no, Josie Johnson's hair and the Holy spirit. That's about me. And so they, like my, nothing that I've done in my fat, like, the New York Times, uh, reading while black, none of that stuff carries a candle to um, <laughs> Josie Johnson. And the other tricky part now is I got three other kids, and the three other kids were like, "Well, we need a book about us too." So that so you like, I'm going to let you know if you write one, you got to write two. So be careful, or you should put them in the story together and make it a little bit co-equal. So be careful if you fictionalize one child, you got to fictionalize all four, or they're going to end up. <laughs> uh all right so the book is uh, josie johnson's hair and the holy spirit this is a gorgeously illustrated book that tells the story of a conversation between a little girl and her father about the uniqueness of her parents namely her hair and each culture has their unique relationship with hair can you walk us through some of the expressions of how it is unique for black americans um i think that one of the things that kids don't i mean this is fine like you don't, I'm not mad at children, but children often don't know how to analyze difference. And so if you don't give them tools to analyze difference, they kind of um, see different as bad or strange. And so African-American hair just looks different. It's, you know, you know, there's a thousand different grades of African-American hair. So I don't want to stereotypically into one thing, but you know, like an Afro or braids or all of those things are kind of unique ways in which we express um, our culture. And for kids who aren't used to seeing that, and they're used to seeing blonde and brown hair that is relatively straight, they will sometimes look at my daughter's hair or any black woman's hair as exotic. And it's just, you know, like, what is this thing? And so what I wanted to really articulate is, no, 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 no. Like what you have is not this exotic thing that deviates from the norm. There's a norm of hair and that you're exotic. No, 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 no. Like God created each one of these you know, people with different hairstyles and hair forms on purpose. And each one of those distinctive ways of, of looking and moving in the world can be beautiful and good uh, and bring, are beautiful and good and bring God's glory. So in other words, I wanted to make sure that my daughter knew that she was not exotic, but that she was an image bearer. The last several years, there've been multiple stories uh, that have made national headlines about Black Americans being discriminated against because of their hair. And I specifically recall the story of a, a Black teenager who was forced to cut his hair before a wrestling match, or yeah. he would have to forfeit. Um, to which I quickly added to my, to my lexicon hair discrimination. For, yeah. for someone that's never experienced or witnessed this, they can't imagine you know, this kind of thing happening. But how is hair a source of discrimination? I mean, I think, I think that what happens is it's the definition of professionalism. So when they say we want a neat or professional look, implicitly there's an idea that certain forms of black hair is unprofessional or unkempt. And that is centering, that's like centering the majority culture and making the majority culture the norm to which everybody must conform. Another example, they, they did a study on this that, that relates to it. Um, and this may seem like it's unrelated, but at least it is in my brain. They, they put together these CVs. I don't know if you heard of this. They put together these CVs um, or resumes and they put a one resume, kind of a white sounding name, Sarah Johnson. And then um, on the other one, they put another name like Letitia Jenkins or whatever the names were. And then they had another one that had a, a, a international sounding name. And the exact same resume, the name that sounded more traditionally white received more phone calls. And the reason that that happened was, it was so it wasn't qualifications. 
it was literally, I looked at this name and this name feel, felt more familiar to me and it felt normal. Therefore, I, I gave that person more of a chance to get the job. And that use of name can kind of be transferred over to hair and cultural expression. So when you think, what is a professional look? You know, God didn't like on high, you know, when he, when he gave the law to Moses, he didn't also say, this is professional hairstyle. And so what people tended to do is um, norm what they thought was natural and what they thought was natural was not normal black cultural expression. There's actually a law and I'm not sure if it's passed. I think it's, it's been um, in and out of the courts for a long um, recently. It's called the Crown Act. And I forgive me in my brain, it's, it's early on a Wednesday morning. It's called the Crown Act. And the whole point of the Crown Act is it would exclude from a host of um, uh, jobs and other kinds of uh, uh, what do you call it? companies, these rules around hairstyles that um, unfairly discriminate against African-Americans. And so I don't know if um, people recognize like how, how common those kinds of rules and issues are not just for black women, but for black men as well who have dreadlocks. Uh, you know, when this event occurred, um, I wanted to know more about why this mattered so much. And what I didn't expect to discover was that um, this this stretches back. I mean, for for hundreds and hundreds of years during the transatlantic slave trade, slave traders would shave the heads of Africans when they were captured as a punitive measure of taking away their identity and purging them of their culture. Hair and the colonies, you know, became a, a source of empowerment to cultivate identity and expression. And then you fast forward to, you know, the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement. Hair was a symbol of, of activism and self-expression. So why is the celebration of diversity, especially when it comes to hair, an important part of our Jesus-centric love of neighbor. It is an affirmation of the fact that all people are created in God's image. So when you say one way in which God created hair to function, so God made black people with curlier hair. And one of the ways we express that is through braids and locks and those things. When you say that that style of hair that God gave me is, is, is not appropriate for public, um, display or only in styles that that are most kind of congruent with the standards of majority culture and you implicitly denying what god created as something that is good and beautiful sorry i was looking at it um that i was looking at the crown act um while we were speaking and it it, it, it addresses the actual article uh, the, the exact issue that you talked about the teenager from attending school and the whole point is that the the, the law and i think that they're trying to get it state by state is that it would um, protect against bias based upon hair texture and protective styles, including locks, cornrows, twists, braids, bantu knots, and afros. There's a lot of schools and a lot of businesses that outlaw this particular form of, of hair style, and the Crown Act would allow legal protection against that form of discrimination. I want to make sure I got that part in. And so the whole point for the Christian is that something like um, braids or twists, which are cultural forms, are good and beautiful and they are manifestation of God's creativity. The book is layered with the season of Pentecost. Why is it important for what you're trying to convey through the book? Yeah, that was one of the interesting things when uh, they asked me, do you need to keep the Pentecost in there? And I was like, yes, I know. I think I have, I told them I have the market cornered on black hair and Pentecost. I think that's like, I think that's my, uh, that I think, I think I might, that I might be the first person to do that. I don't know. The reason that Pentecost is important to me is because at the center of the, Pente the Pentecostal story is that the Holy Spirit comes down and the gospel is preached to the different um, language groups who are gathered in Jerusalem. And I think the point of that, uh, of that image of Pentecost is the gospel is for everybody. And so African-Americans or black people in general are part of the everyone to whom the gospel has come. And so I wanted to, to, to include the concept of Pentecost is that what I was not trying to separate African-American Christians from the wider body of Christ that the gospel goes into all the different people groups of the world, 
one of whom are African-Americans or, or Black people. And the Black people themselves should understand themselves as a part of that wider community of faith. So I want to, I want to both affirm particularity and embrace universality at the same time. And Pentecost is a perfect way for me to do that, or was a perfect way for me to do that. I can imagine there's a lot of hopes for the book, but what do you hope for your readers? What do you hope for parents that are reading with this, uh, with their children? What do you hope for the children that are reading this? I, I think that, like I said earlier, children tend to rank difference. And that, that's just like a natural instinct that this is different, this is bad. Or, and, and so I wanted them to understand, no, like different can be good. Different is good. God didn't make us all one way. So the first thing I wanted them to understand is that that God's kingdom includes all the very ethnic groups in the world who respond to his call and trust him in faith. And the other thing that I want people to understand is it's okay. It's not just okay. It's good. And it's important, especially for oppressed people to say, God made me this way on purpose. And he has called what he has made good. And to have that, that deep affirmation that it's necessary for people who have historically been told they are not good because of the color of their skin. There are people who need to hear, I am um, the way that God made me as an African-American person is good and beautiful. Our guest is Esau McCulley. The book is Josie's Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. If you want to stay connected with Esau, visit EsauMcCulley.com. Esau, it's an honor to have a few moments with you. Um, thank you for reminding us of just how much we are all loved and valued by God. Thank you so much for having me. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in Black Church Studies, Rural Ministries, and Pastoral Care, as well as two Exploring Ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 